right. Yeah. I'm sorry to say I didn't bring the PowerPoint. I, I copied the wrong uh, file into the uh, into the onto the drive. So we're going to have to do without the visual aids. But um, let me then pr uh, pray my um, my altered version of the passage from the Litany of Saints uh, on your behalf, and you can respond, thanks be to God. For Lancelot Andrews, John Wesley, Charles Simeon, Martin Johnson, Andrew Unger, Mary Baker, Joy Unger, Rob Lewis, and Soren Kierkegaard, We've, and for all who preach the word of God, thanks be to God. And now, I was going to have us all pray together a, uh, a prayer of Kierkegaard as well, to begin with, with but I, I'll have to do that by myself. Um, Father in heaven, thou hast loved us first. Let us never forget that thou art love, so that this sure conviction may triumph in our hearts over the seduction of the world, over the disquietude of the soul, over our anxiety for the future, over our fright of the past, over the distress of the moment. But grant also that this conviction may discipline our soul so that our heart remains faithful and sincere in the love that we bear to all those whom thou hast commanded us to love as we love ourselves. This uh, lovely prayer uh, is, is, has, has indications of what is uh, central to Kierkegaard's cons uh, concerns as he writes. Um, there are two, two goods that, uh, that he prays for in this prayer. Um, our our well-being and happiness, and that we might love each other, love our neighbors as ourselves. And he connects the our our uh, happiness, what he calls our eternal happiness, with um, focusing on that conviction that God is love. In other words, the idea is that we, if, we, if we keep that thought before us, um, we will triumph over the disquietude of the soul, the anxiety for the future, and, and all those other ills that beset the human frame. And the second uh, the second good that he called, that he prays for is that our soul might be disciplined in such a way that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, so he uses the word triumph in our hearts in this, in this uh, prayer, and then he speaks about disciplining our soul. And these are two concerns that pervade Kierkegaard's ministry. Um, he, he talks, um, he writes a lot about what he calls edification or um, upbuildingness, of being built up. 
and he wrote many, many discourses called upbuilding discourses or edifying discourses. And the notion of, of edification, of course, is the notion of being built up. Um, an edifice is a, is a building, and our, our souls, our hearts, are also edifices that are constructed, you might say, out of our thought life. That's, I mean, the, for, for Kierkegaard, the, the, the main, uh, you might say, shape that our souls can take is a conceptual shake, it, uh, shape. It's a, it's a way of thinking about ourselves and about the world and about God. And he's very much uh, concerned with, uh, with making that shape um, with, with, with uh, writing in such a way that that shape shapes us human beings. Um, well, I'm Bob Roberts. I taught philosophy for 16 years at Wheaton College. I've been asked by An Andrew to introduce myself, uh, and so that's what I'm going to do now. Um, so I, I taught at, six, at uh, Wheaton College for 16 years and then at Baylor for 14 years. And because our children uh, all grew up here in uh, Wheaton, the youngest was, uh, I think, nine months when we arrived and 17 when we left, um, we, we, Wheaton see, seems to be kind of the geographical center of the family. And so that and the fact that Elizabeth uh, prefers Illinois to Texas um, brought us to uh, move back to Wheaton in 2015 when I retired. When I was 21 years old, <clears throat> in a course at Wichita State University, I first read uh, Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. That's probably the most read book of Kierkegaard. Um, and despite not understanding very much of it at the time, it blew me away like nothing I had ever read before. It, it just seemed to be even though I didn't quite understand it, you know, I, it just seemed to speak to my, to my humanness, <laughs> to my soul, to my heart. Uh, and uh, uh, then a few years later, when I applied to PhD programs in philosophy, uh, I, in my letter of interest, I told the committee how interested I was in the in philosophy that would warm your heart that would that would build you up <clears throat> and uh, apparently my my interest there was not shared by many of the philosophy departments uh, in the world uh, the, I applied to five top-ranked uh, ones and I got rejected everywhere but somehow I prevailed I won't give you that all that detail and I've taught for 43 years taught philosophy for 43 years and I stand before you today, gray whiskers and all, and still think philosophy ought to speak to the heart. And I learned that from Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, early in the 1960s, Kierkegaard was thought to be, that's when I started reading him, uh, Kierkegaard was thought to be one of the existentialists. In fact, not just one of the existentialists, the father of existentialism, he's called. There may be a few places where that, that idea is still taught, 
But I think scholarly consensus now would not associate Kierkegaard with existentialism, at least not, not people who've read Kierkegaard. Um, <clears throat> if we take uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, as sort of paradigmatic for, for existentialism, uh, then uh, let me, I want to explain the difference between existentialism and Kierkegaard. Uh, he says, Sartre says, existence precedes essence. Now that's, that's kind of fancy language for you don't have a nature until you choose it yourself. Uh, and in this, uh, in this regard, he's speaking against an entire Christian and, uh, and uh, Aristotelian uh, tradition of thinking of, of all of creation, all of live creation, all biological things in the world as uh, having various natures. So, you know, a, a, an acorn has a, has a nature such that it is bound, if, it, if it's got the right conditions, to become a, an oak tree and it can't become anything else. And similarly for raccoons and, uh, and all, the, all the other all other animals and, and plant species, they are specified in their DNA, we now know, uh, for certain kinds of flourishing, certain kinds of uh, maturity. So maturity is going to be indexed to your nature. And Sartre is saying, human beings are different from all those other biological species in that we're not given any any program, you might say, in our, in our nature, uh, that's not determined by anything but us. We decide what we're going to be. Now, <clears throat> and so, so choice becomes extremely important in uh, Sartre's uh, idea of what a human being is. Human beings are essentially choosers. Now, I just contradicted uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, of course, because to say that they're human beings are essentially choosers is to say that they do have a nature, after all. Uh, so th this, this notion that of, of Sartre is kind of confused, but it's very different from what, uh, what Kierkegaard uh, believes. Kierkegaard says in a book called uh, The Sickness Unto Death that uh, human beings, the self, he says, is a synthesis of the temporal and the eternal, the finite and the infinite, of necessity and freedom, those three things. So it's a, it's a synthesis of these two things. We, we have an eternal side and we have a, fi a finite or temporal side, an infinite side, uh, and we are, we are determined to, to say that we're, we're um, co a combination of necessity and freedom is to say that there are lots of things in our lives about which we can't choose, right? We're, we're given a certain, um, certain biological makeup. We're given a certain family that we are born into. We're, we're give, given a certain nationality. And, uh, and those are things with, within which we have to work, in which we have to choose the eternal, the infinite, and, and choose what to be ourselves. And Kierkegaard says that we are not only a synthesis of the temporal and the eternal, but we're a, 
the, the eternal side of us is such that if we do not acknowledge our creator, if we don't choose ourselves, you might say, before God, then we will not be fulfilled. We will, we will not live a good life. We won't become mature and we won't be happy in this uh, sense of eternal happiness that he uh, talks about. So, so Kierkegaard very much believes that we have a nature and that there are, uh, there's, a, there's a specification, you might say, as to what human flourishing and human success and human happiness are going to be. Now, uh, in a book called um, Point of View for My Work as an Author, um, Kierkegaard explains posthumously, this, this book comes out in 1859, um, four years after his death, his brother brings it out, but it's a, it's a book that lays out what, how he conceived his own writings. And he says there that he's a missionary. Uh, he's a missionary with a special kind of uh, mission field. And the mission field that he, uh, he is peculiarly uh, equipped to address is the mission field that he calls Christendom. Now Christendom, he says, is a monstrous illusion. <laughs> And the monstrous illusion is that in Christendom, in this sort of social ethos uh, called, that he calls Christendom, um, everybody thinks that they're Christians. And uh, so I, imagine the, the following kind of scenario. You, you, uh, you're a, you're a, a missionary and you, you go off into some foreign country and you, uh, you try to convert you want, with the intention of converting the native population. And when you get there, uh, you, they, they say, oh, we're already Christians. Uh, we don't need to become Christians, we're, we're already Christians. But then you learn the language and you kind of uh, get, get in, get, become an insider to the culture and you realize these people think in very different categories from Christianity. They behave in, in very different ways than Christians. And, uh, and so now how am I going to preach the gospel to them? How am I going to preach the gospel to people who think they're already Christians? And Kierkegaard says, the, what you have to do first is you have to um, explode the illusion. You have to, he says that he was like, in 1852 in a journal, uh, he notes, he was like a, the madman who said that he would go down into the Dovrefjell, which is a sort of a mountain range with deep valleys. He would go down in there and he would plant a syllogism that would blow up the world. <laughs> so he says, what was needed in, in, uh, in Christendom was somebody to go deep 
down into human existence relationships and to plant there the explosive either or. And he has one of his first major book is called Either Or, and it's composed of two parts. One part is the exposition of the aesthetic life, not ascetic, but aesthetic life. And the second is the, the, um, the ethical life. And it's as though there is a big either or here. <clears throat> if you're living in aesthetic categories, um, then you're not living in an ethical life. And if you're living in an ethical life, according to the sort of concepts, like concept, the concept of duty, for example, if, you, if you've got a strong sense of duty, uh, then you're, you're probably living the ethical life. And uh, <coughs> then you, <coughs> your life will be very differently formed from someone who, um, who's living the aesthetic life. Um, let me see. Now, uh, so Kierkegaard writes, I had all this on, on nice uh, slides. Sorry, I worked very hard on it too. <laughs> um, but um, he, he writes two, two uh, kinds of literature. His authorship. For about 10 years, between 1842 and 1852, Kierkegaard writes and writes. I mean, he writes every day and he writes voluminously. These, <clears throat> uh, he writes, I don't know, maybe uh, 12 or 15 books that belong, that he calls the aesthetic works. And these are attributed to pseudonyms. Pseudonyms like um, Hilarious Bookbinder and Vigilius Haufniensis, and uh, Constantine Constantius, and uh, Johannes Climacus, and Johannes de Silentio, and Johannes Anticlimacus, and Johannes the Seducer, and all of these, all of these pseudonyms. And, <clears throat> and what he's doing in those pseudonyms, in those pseudonymous works, he's writing in very kind of beautiful, uh, this, this is what one of the senses of aesthetic is that these are very these are very poetic kinds of works, and he uh, uh, they're rhapsodic sometimes, uh, and but but beautifully written. They're all lovely masterpiece works, and uh, he what he's doing in those works is he's trying to explain from inside what a way of life would be from. Uh, uh, to explain that in such a way that he gets completely inside the, those characters, so that those characters, it's as though the characters themselves are commending to you the, um, the way of life that they live and the formation of character that they have. So this is a, it's a tremendous, it's, I mean, it's a spectacular, virtuosic performance in empathy. <laughs> And that, that maybe is something that we, wanna, we would want all missionaries to have, right? That, that they, they could somehow get inside the people to whom they are speaking. 
So, so that's one side of the work of his. <laughs> that's just that's just half of what he wrote, right? I mean, that's not even half because he also wrote this this many volumes of uh, of journals. But so, in addition to <clears throat> to these books like *Fear and Trembling* and *The Sickness Unto Death* and the concluding unscientific postscript and the philosophical fragments and all these pseudonymous works. <clears throat> Kierkegaard also wrote a whole bunch of religious books. Uh, there's upbuilding ver discourses in various spirits. There's uh, Christian, dis uh, Christian, reflect uh, Christian uh, discourses, 18 upbuilding discourses and so forth. Just, uh, <clears throat> I had these all on, on a Slide, um, but <clears throat> but the, 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 I, mean, I just can't I can't uh, match the the enormity of this task that he undertook. Um, so in ten years, he writes maybe thirty or forty books, <clears throat> and they're all masterpieces, right? <laughs> um, and some of them are eight hundred pages long. I mean. Uh, so, so that's his, his mission, his missionary work is this, is this combination of what he calls indirect discourse, indirect uh, communication, which he does through the pseudonyms. So he's not, he's not speaking in his own voice, but he's speaking through the pseudonyms. And then there's a whole bunch of other books that he's actually signs, and they are his those are his religious works. And he calls that direct communication, where he's just laying it out. Um, but <clears throat> let me see here. I, hope I'm, I was kind of depending on my, my uh, slides to organize my thoughts. But um, yeah, so let's, let's just think a little bit about what, how, how Christendom relates to contemporary American religious life, just a little bit. Uh, Christendom is both like and unlike uh, contemporary uh, American uh, religious life. In, uh, in, in 19th century Denmark, uh, there was a <coughs> considerable uh, homogeneity in terms of, uh, religious, of official religious commitment. Uh, so you wouldn't find very many Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or so forth on the streets of Copenhagen. Um, so in this regard, uh, America, which is, I take it, uh, more or less officially um, uh, diverse in, in religious makeup, um, is, is pretty different. But the... The, the idea of a kind of domesticated Christianity, a kind of Christianity that has been co-opted by, uh, by modern ways of thinking about life and, uh, and <clears throat> so forth, um, is um, in that way, uh, we, you know, we have things like the feel-good, prosperity, gospel, self-help, psychology, uh, confusion of Christianity and American trumpery, uh, first, first, uh, America first evangelical trumpery, and the like of that. <clears throat> and all that looks very much like Christendom. 
I mean, it looks as though somebody needs to go in there with an either-or and explode the, uh, explode the illusion that this is Christianity uh, as, a, as a precondition, then, for preaching the gospel and uh, really forming disciples. So I've talked about <clears throat> the difference between the, the um, pseudonymous works, the aesthetic works, and the religious works as two parts of an, of a, of an educational enterprise. Yeah, yeah it's a, and a missionary enterprise. But I want to say something a little bit else, a little bit more about uh, Kierkegaard's style. He talks about himself. He says he says that he his own uh, calling was that of poet dialectician. Um, so when he says when he says he's a poet, he doesn't mean uh, to say that he writes verse. I don't think he wrote any verse at all that I know of. Um, but he means that he writes. Uh, writes in such a way that it's full of metaphor, of simile, of, uh, of parables, and uh, um, other, other literary uh, devices. And it's just, it's just amazing when you read just one of the little edifying discourses, maybe a 20-page a discourse, it, there's just a kind of virtuosic Flow of these metaphors and and stories and and uh, and analogies that um, that are designed to speak to the heart. Right. Oh, I've got. I have had such a beautiful one. Oh, on the slide. Very very sorry about this. But. Um, so, so he's a poet, poet dialectician, and um, by dialectic, the word dialectic here comes from a Greek, comes from Greek uh, roots that from which also we have the word dialogue and dialect. Um, and it, dialectic in Plato is a kind of um, it's a kind of rigorous thinking. Uh, but it's also it got a certain kind of uh, uh, dialogical, dialogical character to it, so that it's thinking uh, in rigorous conversational terms. So one person proposes a thesis, and the other person thinks hard about that thesis and responds to it, probably in a negative way, probably trying to uh, to find what find fault with it, and then. The first person responds to the response, and there's a response to the response to the response, and so forth. And the the process is a process of clarification. It's a very it's a very powerful way of developing ideas. <clears throat> um, so Kierkegaard uh, thinks of himself as a kind of thinker, a kind of logician, you might say, almost of the of the uh, Christian life, and of the of of, of these all these other kinds of lives that he <laughs> that he's, are represented by the uh, pseudonyms. Um, so so he's he's got these two two sides to him. He's a poet and a dialectician at the same time. Very few philosophers in the history of philosophy are both. Right, most of them. I mean, most of them are just dialecticians. 
at best, and maybe not even very good ones. Um, but corresponding to this distinction between poetry, the poetic and the dialectic, um, Kierkegaard uh, says that to become a Christian is a pathetic dialectic task. That is to say, it's a, it's a t task of forming the pathos, forming your, your emotional life, your concerns, your cares, your desires, your motives on the one side, but forming them in conformity with Christian thought. Uh, so Kierkegaard is very, very orthodox as far as uh, Christian theology goes. He, he believes all, all of the, the doctrines of the, of the faith. Um, he's pretty much a faithful Lutheran in that, in that regard, except that he's so, he's so interested in this intense uh, formation of the, of the self. Um, and that does seem to be missing in, in some of the reformers. Um, so, so his his missionary work. I'll, I'll conclude now. Uh, his missionary work is this is this poetic dialectic task. It's the task of thinking clearly and then con conveying those thoughts in a in a heartfelt uh, way. Uh, in a way that's not, heart, not just heartfelt, but heart-moving uh, to his audience. And uh, so why don't we have some questions or comments or something? Yes, Phil. Why did he think of forming pathos to Christian thought was uh, not the best thing? Why did he think what? You were talking about pathos, the emotions mm -hmm. No, no. Uh, he 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 thinks that the path, the pathetic part of the of the human frame, the the emotional our emotional life should be formed by our beliefs, by our by our Christian beliefs. Yes, that that's the whole program, right? It's to it's to bring bring a person's character into conformity with the Christian. Message. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You had said that um, the first step was basically throw the system into chaos. Throw. Right? Well, yeah, it's. But to do that, doesn't he have to have a sense of what the standard is? To yeah. be able to look at something and say, yeah. I can fix this. This is what I'm yep. Well, is Orthodox Lutheran belief not dynamic? <laughs> I mean, uh, <clears throat> that's that's what it was. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think there, there there's something here that might be regarded as kind of arrogance that he knows he knows what Christianity is and everybody else uh, uh, doesn't. That yeah, I suppose there's a little. Um, but the, but the, I mean, if you if you look at the works, and look at what he believes, I think you would agree that uh, that he does know what <laughs> what Christianity is. Um, 
Yeah, but and I think that the, the sort of virtuosic character of this missionary enterprise is is this is this spectacular empathy that he has for people of, a, of all kinds of outlooks, um, and and outlooks that are in some ways very uh, in dis, very much in dissonance with his own. Um, so I me, mean, I don't know whether I'm uh, answering your worry. Would no, no, okay. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear you expand a little on the, the either or, the um, aesthetic okay. versus the um, ethical. Yeah. And in particular, whether you know you're, you just started to sort of channel Kierkegaard a little, and uh, and sort of propose that he would. Uh, diagnose current American Christian society is in need of a similar sort of either-or bomb. Would it be the same either-or? I mean, do you think it would be this sort of aesthetic versus ethical? How would it be translated? Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. the word aesthetic is pretty broad in, in Kierkegaard. Um, and so people who live for, live for pleasure, live for the momentary pleasures, people who who are more interested in keeping their whole in, whole life interesting, you know, sort of titillating, and uh, people who move from uh, he's got, a, he's got there's a little essay in, in the first volume of either or called the rotation method, and it's a it's a sort of deep psychological explanation of how you would go about becoming atemporal, so that you're not you're not really living in time, but every moment for you is this fresh, uh, you know, titillating exper experience. Um, and I mean, that's an extreme uh, case and it's, uh, and it's highly intellectualized in this, in this rotation method essay. But it seems as though that's what, let's put many people, how, that's how many people live, right? They, they live sort of from moment to moment, just for as, as much fun, as much uh, sort of, uh, interesting, keeping things interesting as, as possible. And so, and they don't, one of the, one of the big differences between the uh, aesthetic life and the ethical life is that the ethical life assumes temporality. It assumes that we, we are in time and that whatever we become, we have to be, it has to be for the long haul. Right, it can't be just uh, short, short term, and so this is a kind of an either-or. Either you live in temporality, or you try to sort of escape from temporality uh, in the aesthetic mode. Um, and it, and what Kierkegaard tries to do in planting the either-or bomb is is to try to just uh, make make it completely un. un unavoidable, unavoidably clear what people are doing and what the, what the sort of internal consequences of those things are. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a series of um, aphorisms, very, very cute and sort of uh, beautiful. Some of them are very beautiful. Some of them are funny, but a, a bunch of, about 20 pages of aphorisms at, in the first volume of either or the aesthetic part, and they they just they just express a whole range of different sort of moods and and uh, 
and thought some of them are desperate, some of them are joyous, some of them are, are sort of funny. And, and, um, and what they do is they kind of reproduce the, the emotional life of an esthete. <laughs> uh, and and if, you, if you were an esthete and you read that, the, his idea, Kierkegaard's hope, is that you would become, you would, you would begin to see yourself. It's like a, it's like a mirror that held up to, to anybody who actually has this lifestyle. Um, and it's, but it's a mirror that does more than just, it's a, it's a mirror that gives you perspective, that, that, that begin, begins to give you kind of, kind of distance on yourself so that you can also see what's going on here, you know, I mean, most, most of us are not all that clear about what. <laughs> yep, yeah, please. So, um, I'm wondering, Kierkegaard plants this bomb. Um, but I'm curious, is Nietzsche the one who actually ends up setting it off? Oh, Nietzsche's a very different character from Kierkegaard. I, I know the, the, the you know, I, it probably still happens that people will have a course in existentialism, and it'll have Nietzsche and Kierkegaard both in the same yeah. in the same course. Uh, I'm, and, I'm familiar with, the, with Kierkegaard as being part of the line of existentialism. So you saying yeah. you chop them off of that is, is somewhat is Yeah, I I mean, he is so different from the existentialists, and also I mean equally dis different from Nietzsche. I don't. Uh, um, you know, it might be that Jean-Paul Sartre happened to be reading Kierkegaard when he had his first thoughts <laughs> about existentialism or something, but, um, but that, wouldn't, that doesn't make an essential uh, kinship between them. Uh, yeah, Mark. Well, he has a book called Works of Love. I think that that's kind of a, maybe, maybe a little bit of a kind of critique of the, of the, of the Lutheran, you know, uh, polemic against works righteousness. Uh, so, I mean, he's very, there are works <laughs> of love um, that are to be. No, no. The works of love are works works of the spiritual um, character trait of agape. What what a person who loves does. Yeah, and they do tend to be kind of in, internal. You know, there. I mean, he doesn't say go out and feed the poor. Uh, you know, go out and do this and that. He doesn't specify actions in that sense. These are actions like. Um, remembering that you're uh, that your neighbor is the same as you are. Uh, he has this this little um, what does he call it? 
the uh, the water uh, the watermark, right? You hold hold a piece of paper up, and you see you can see the watermark. Um, but and he says it, it there's a there's a kind of spiritual watermark that's identical on all individual human beings. So we are all it's 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 as though we're all characters in a play, and we're playing these roles, these various roles that we have in life. But underneath the costumes, we're all the same, <laughs> all equal. I mean, equality is an enormous uh, concept in Kierkegaard. Uh, and so yeah, that, that seeing the other as your equal, that, that would be a work of love. Um, There's a Kierkegaard lecture at Wheaton this week, and I said that to Bob at the beginning. He said, yes, that was my student. So we're, we're grateful for this. He went on without the PowerPoint. Thank you. He's a great thinker for us as we bring together this Lutheran understanding, but, but cautioning and checking against it, which is why Kierkegaard is so important. Daphne Hansen says, look to him. We're doing the experiment here at All Souls. Bob, thank you. You're welcome. All right.